0: Jesus took the final few steps up a mountainside and as he did uh, he motioned to his closest friends the disciples come come closer to me and as they did he began he sat down and they began to speak these words blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God and blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied he continued on and with these sentences Jesus of Nazareth declared the uncommon nature of his kingdom he began to say that that his kingdom was different and those who joined him on the mountain that day the crowds and his friends Discovered something different about what Jesus was about to do. About what God had been doing. In the audience that day, there were people who were poor. They had nothing. They were destitute. There were people who just lived day to day. They struggled with, uh, there were day labors. And if there was work to do, they ate. If there wasn't, they didn't. There were people who just struggled to get their daily bread. There were the curious people who had heard the rumors about a, a a Messiah, a Jesus, a Savior, the Christ, the one that had been promised. They'd, begin, they'd begun to hear the rumors. You see, they had heard about some miracles that had taken place. They'd heard about a, a Jesus who went to the Jordan River. No relation. Went to the Jordan River and was baptized at the very same place the children of Israel had walked across thousands of years early. And as they went across to claim an special identity, Jesus went into the river and was given his special identity by the Father who opened the curtain of heaven and said, "This is my son, whom I love, and I'm well pleased." They'd heard those rumors. There've been conversations about the, mir- the 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 walk that he took into the wilderness for 40 days, and in their mind, the way they understood scripture, it was through events and places and geography and locations and stories and there was a symbolism that they were aware of because it was the stories of their people that just as we wandered 40 years in the wilderness this Jesus now went 40 days and nights in the wilderness and he was tested and he succeeded where we failed and everything pointed to him you see they were very very aware of this Jesus who had done miracles, and they knew, the people of God knew, that every time God did miracles, there was one of two things going to happen. Either God was going to speak, or God was going to rescue. Because that was their history, and they understood that that now Jesus is doing miracles. They understood that this, this, this carpenter who came from Nazareth, and now had moved to Capernaum, fulfilled a prophecy that from Zebulun and Naphtali, would come this light that the world would see Isaiah the prophet said the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those living in the land of great darkness the light has come from the land of Zebulun and Naphtali which is Nazareth and Capernaum and all the symbolism was rich see most of these folks couldn't read so they didn't pick up a scroll and and, and to own a scroll You had to be rich or one of the religious elite or a king. And so they learned the scriptures through stories and they would walk and they would say, ah, right here, this is where God did this and over here is where God did this. And so if you're familiar with any of the sentences from the Old Testament, there's a common phrase, and they built an altar and it's there to this day. And they did that as a reminder that this is a part of God's word, part of God's story. And so the symbolism was not lost on them that when Jesus launched his speaking, he sat on a mountain. Because, see, on mountains, God had done great things. Do you realize that on a mountain, God and Abraham had this exchange? And Abraham was declared righteous before God because of faith. On a mountain, Elijah killed 800 prophets of Baal. on a mountain, Moses saw the finger of God come out of the sky and write the commandments. And so it's not a coincidence. There is a picture and a symbol for us to assimilate and live in this moment that Jesus walked up to a mountain and he sat down. In that culture, a great teacher would often just take his chair or take a stool or take a rock, whatever was available to them, And they would just sit because that was a sign of authority. Our culture, we stand and we pace back and forth and we yell. But then the teacher would just sit. And so when Jesus, all the symbolism was rich, they had seen it. They knew it was a part of their history, part of their culture. They knew that when Jesus began to speak, something was about to happen. Something was going to take place in that crowd were were zealots. And the zealots were people who wanted to force the hand of God. Come on, God, if we start a riot, if we start a war, if we start some kind of insurrection, some kind of trouble, then God will surely bail us out. He will lead his movement. There were the religious elite who had power. They had structure. They had the authority of the word. They had the scrolls themselves. They knew all the answers. And in that crowd were all these folks. In that crowd were moms. They were single moms. Because their husbands had died in battles. Trying to free themselves from Rome. In that crowd were men who had buried their sons. We're in that crowd today, aren't we? Don't we all fit in that same crowd? Aren't we the same kind of people that actually saw Jesus climb to a mountain and sit down and begin to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn because they're going to find comfort. Blessed are the meek, because they'll inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will find satisfaction. The air was thick with anticipation. They were curious. They were there. The crowds were there because they had heard about this Jesus. And so they came maybe to hear something from God. This was no small, regular teaching. This wasn't Jesus in the privacy or online saying, guess what, I've got some ideas to share with you. Everyone who was in earshot understood that Jesus was talking about something radically different than they had experienced. There was a twist to everything he said at this moment. There was something different about what he was saying to them. And they were hungry for it. And not just those within earshot, but the way words traveled back then was over a meal, over a walk. Hey, did you hear about what happened on the mountain just outside of Capernaum did you hear what happened here did you hear what happened at the river and they would talk about it and stories meant something different to them than they do to us and they would share these stories again and again and again and pretty soon it's why Jesus could not go anywhere that he wasn't met with a crowd because word had gotten there in front of him this guy's different he says something that's different he's telling us something that isn't the same that we've always heard and last week when we read the last sentence of the Sermon on the Mount, they were amazed because Jesus spoke with authority not as teachers of the law. They'd heard something they'd never heard before. We don't have that luxury today. We've read it all week long. We've heard it preached. We've gone to churches. We've grown up in faith. We've grown up around faith. Some of us went to Bible school. Some of us studied very very well the scriptures and so we don't have the same sense of anticipation when we read it in fact we read it in a whole different line when Jesus spoke one of the things we have to remember is that the people who he was speaking to had had many prayers and you know what they prayed God send your kingdom here Please, God, we want your kingdom to come here. Do something now, God. We live under the oppression of Rome. We live under heavy taxes. We live under a restriction of freedom. God, please. And they had prayed for the kingdom of heaven. The people who heard these words said, God, please comfort us. They had prayed for comfort more than once. They said, oh, God, would you bring your comfort to our spirit? We're afflicted. We're suffering. We're poor. We're lost. We're battered. Jesus said it this way. They're like sheep who have no shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. And they had prayed for comfort. They had prayed They had prayed for, for, for the, their, their land to produce again. They, they wanted to inherit their earth. God, the promise that you gave us for our land, in the, in the Sinai covenant that he made with them, they had prayed, oh God, would you restore our land to us? The northern place where Jesus settled was where the ten northern tribes of Israel lived, And they'd been carried away in about 720 B.C., spread throughout the whole entire world. And they'd lost their land, and so they prayed, Oh, God, would you restore our land? Can we inherit the earth again? Could it be? And they had also prayed for satisfaction. God, would would you do something in us? Would you settle the account? Would you bring justice? Would there be satisfaction now in our lives? And God had been hearing those prayers. In fact, if you read the scriptures, one of the phrases you read about God is that he listens. When God hired Moses in Exodus 3, what did he say to Moses? I've been hearing. I've been seeing the cries of my people. Each time in the book of Judges that God acted and rescued the people, what did he say? I've seen the affliction. I've heard the cries of my people. In the book of Revelation, it says there was silence in the heavens for about a half an hour until the prayers of God ascended to the people or ascended to the throne of God. God is listening. And he had heard these prayers spoken by zealots, spoken by single moms, spoken by the frail and the elderly, the sick, the religious elite, spoken by all the people that had gathered. He had heard their prayers. And when he comes in to speak to them, he twists everything he makes a mess he doesn't come in and say "Ah, I have heard your your cry for the kingdom and for heaven now so let me just smack these Romans around a little bit and we'll be settled he actually says I want to I want to give you some declarations now there's a few things that we have to understand as we read this first of all these are not commands He's not commanding us to be poor in spirit, to mourn. these, These are actually declarations of what is when you live in the kingdom of God. This isn't how we access the kingdom. This is the reality in the kingdom. When you are in the kingdom, you have a poverty of spirit. In the traditional way of understanding this, sort of a Western mindset, we say, this is how you get saved. You recognize your spiritual poverty. We've all heard that before, haven't we? That's how you enter the kingdom. And then you mourn over it because that's repentance and sorrow. And then you live in humility, that's your meekness. And then you change your desires and you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's almost a progression of, we, as we describe, sanctification. And that's nothing what Jesus was talking about. That doesn't even make sense that Jesus would answer their prayers saying that. What Jesus is saying... This is what my kingdom is like. And the people who live in my kingdom recognize there's an ongoing understanding of their spiritual poverty. There's an ongoing understanding of the grief. There's an on- it's not a moment in time like a transaction we have with God. It's actually a moment. But for us to understand this, there's some things that we have to figure out here. If we're really going to grasp the blessedness the internal abundance of joy then we have to reorient some things in the way we understand it because I'm gonna be honest with you I grew up hearing this is a spiritual transaction if I want to get saved I got to acknowledge my spiritual poverty and then I've got to mourn and then I've got to that's how I grew, that's how I was taught I was taught that in Bible school I've taught that, I've, been taught that from the pulpit and there was no sense of leading me to a different reorientation it was just a transaction that I make with God I'll do this you do that I'll do this you do that by the way you have to understand that's the mosaic covenant not the new covenant The mosaic covenant is yes for this no for that if you do I will the new covenant is God saying I'm gonna do it all you just enter into it. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. If we're going to understand this, we've got we've to reorient ourselves because Jesus is talking about his kingdom and we've got to reorient ourselves in how we measure pleasure and its role in our life. And I would ask, add to that, how we measure pleasure and pain in our life. We've got to reorient ourselves because here's what, here's what people say. Oh, Life is so hard, God must be trying to teach me something. All that does is make God a knucklehead. I I soften that for you. Because as a parent, you you didn't do that. You didn't say, oh, I need my kid to learn something. I think I'll make him suffer. As though God would do that for us. We've got to begin to reorient how we understand pleasure and pain and understand, as Jesus says later, because He actually does that for us, He says, the rain falls on good people and bad people. And you know what's crazy? I have a friend who loves the rain. And I have a friend who doesn't love the rain. They see the same thing. One is good, one is bad. And Jesus says, I want to reorient the way you think about pleasure and pain. And He walks us through, because in the kingdom, we see it different. In the kingdom, we see something different. We have to prioritize his kingdom in the world right now. Jesus was not announcing a future kingdom. He was announcing a kingdom that is here right now that is going to change the way we see God, that's going to change the way that we experience God, that's going to change everything we know about God. And it's going to change all of that. We have to change, reorient ourselves in how we understand the king's mission and our place in it. I said it before. You'll hear me repeat some things again and again. God has no interest in starting a church. God started a movement that he called the church. His interest isn't in, and he loves the local church. He does. I'm not saying he doesn't. But his interest is in that we, as he's parked, we take our place in the movement of God called the church, not a single church. As is my experience, most pastors, most leaders, and most people are conditioned to think, How do I do my church? And in the kingdom of God, he says we got to reorient our thinking to the mission of God. The singular mission of Jesus was to bring redemption into the world, his method was to make disciples who would make disciples. And he, he did it all for the glory of God. Can I give you a confession? That's not always my singular mission, and it's not always my singular method, but that's who we want to become, because that's what God was creating as a movement, and we have to reorient ourselves in how we express how we express our grace through gratitude. I know a lot of people who say, "I love the grace of God," but there's no gratitude, and my my observation would be, maybe you don't understand the grace of God yet. Because grace that doesn't produce gratitude is misunderstood grace. The writer of Hebrews says, brothers and sisters, it's good for us to have our hearts strengthened by grace. Jesus came full of grace. I grew up in a church that was not full of grace, but they said they were. They quoted, oh, we're full of grace and truth. And you know who they gave grace to? Only the ones that believed exactly their truth. Everybody else was out. And I I remember more than one person saying, I thought grace was good. It just feels like it's another way to follow rules. I was one of those who felt that way. And if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying as he sat down on the mountain, we've got to reorient ourselves. And not only that, we have to understand that Jesus... Was talking about a kingdom here and now. With that as the backdrop, can we just look at some of these sentences that Jesus spoke? He spoke them to his friends, he spoke them to a crowd, he spoke them, God the Holy Spirit wrote them down through Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was really the point of the story of the Gospel of Matthew that God would choose the unlikely to be his messenger. And we're going to look at these words possibly together maybe we could say I'm gonna reorient myself and see myself as a citizen of the kingdom of God not because I have a card that says I am but because I live the mission and the value of my King and his name is Jesus that's a difficult thought in our country because see we live in a country that 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 was formed on the basis of getting away from a king And so we said, we're going to give all the power to the people, right? The problem is, is the people are just as corrupt as the king. And whenever there's corruption, any power anybody has, when a king is corrupt, the people suffer. And when the people are corrupt, the people suffer. And God says, I'm not a corrupt king. You can come here. You can come into my kingdom and you can trust me. You can trust me. I will be the kind of king that you... We're made for. I will be the kind of king that sets you free. I will be the kind of king that uses your life for what it was intended to be used for. And that's where we're going to go, if you'll let me. Verse 1 of Matthew 5, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, he taught them. And he opened his mouth, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's something beautiful about that statement. It's a twist because in in that culture, poverty was not a blessing, not physical or spiritual. In fact, he was speaking to people who didn't have an understanding that they were spiritually poor. Because see, they were the elite, they were the chosen people. It was the Gentiles. It was common for a, a Jewish leader to stand up and say, God, I am so glad that I am not a Gentile or a dog. Because in their mind, they were the spiritual elite. Folks, that applies to us, doesn't it? How many times have we sat and watched the news and thought they're just like dogs or animals? How many times have we read something and we, we don't recognize our own spiritual poverty just like they did? We missed it. And here's what he's saying. Listen, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In the Jewish culture, the word poor had a succession. It was a one word that had a succession. And it meant, blessed are the people who are, who are struggling and destitute. And in their destitution, they understand that, that they're helpless and hopeless. And in their helplessness and hopelessness, they turn to God. That's how they understood poverty. That was the progression of poverty in that culture. Something bad happens, and now I'm struggling. Now I'm getting desperate, and now I have to turn to God, and Jesus... Is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom. What a twist that must have felt like to the people hearing it. What an what a upside down thought that must have been. Because he's saying, you get the kingdom of heaven, here's the kingdom now. I'm doing this. And the culture of the kingdom of heaven is the recognition and the embracing of our spiritual poverty. I met Jesus in 1966. I told you that. Can I tell you what that means on one side of the equation? It means I've been saved a long time. On the other side of the equa- equation, it means that all of my sin, almost every, every one of them, has been done on the salvation side. I'm spiritually destitute. I'm an unmade bed, and so are you. And Jesus is saying to these people, You've got to stay in that place. It's not a transaction where I say, Ah, Now that I recognize my spiritual poverty, I can come to Jesus. It's about living in the real condition and the authenticity of our brokenness. I'm spiritually poor. You don't believe me? Just drive with me sometime. Just drive with me. Look at my speedometer. Listen to my sigh (laughs) as somebody goes too slow in the fast lane. Blessed are those who understand their frailty spiritually. There's actually no verb in there. He doesn't say, blessed are you. He's saying, oh, blessed spiritual poverty. That was upside down for these people. Blessed spiritual poverty. In other words, he's saying, listen, there is a recognition of our dependence upon God. Not just for salvation, but for life. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above. Yeah. I saw a bumper sticker a while back that said, I only know two things there is a God, and you're not him. And yet, in my lack of spiritual awareness of my own poverty, I judge like God does. I get angry. I get frustrated. I, I'm cruel. I ignore. Not like God does, but I do all those things. I'm still broken. And so are you. And he's saying, listen, when you live in that understanding, it produces something in you joy. It produces this blessedness because now you're not striving to earn God's favor. You're just simply living in the result of it. I live in spiritual poverty. He goes on and he says this. <laughs> he says, Blessed are they who mourn. That word mourn there actually is, the, is a very intense word, and it means those who grieve like they're grieving at a funeral. Those who, who bear the, the, the heaving and the weight of loss. Grief at a funeral, grief over death, is not a grief that ends when the last piece of soil goes on the casket. It's a grief that continues with questions. It's a grief that continues with pain. It's a grief that is recycled through memories. It's a grief that is comforted by God's picture of a kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. There's an interesting way to understand that, because I was always taught, blessed are those who mourn your own sin. That's good, right? We should. And then blessed are those who mourn their culture's sin. We should, because we live in a broken world, don't we? But in reality, there's another piece to this. And when we understand grief, we get it. Blessed are those who mourn the effect who, who blessed are those who mourn the effect of my own sin. See, my sin creates a ripple, doesn't it? So does yours. And it goes into somebody else's life, and my anger affects somebody else. My, my thoughts affect somebody else. My uh, indifference affects somebody else. And he's saying, listen, I need you to grieve the whole picture. Because now you're a part of my kingdom, and we need to grieve and mourn so that we can approach the kingdom with freshness. Because when you do, what do you get? Comfort. You get comfort. God comes and says, Listen, I got you. I understand that. I understand that. I remember one particular time in my life, I was going through a lot of grief. And I walked onto a church campus. And one person came to greet me. They didn't say a word, they just threw their arms around me and hugged me until I didn't want to be hugged anymore. And not because I was trying to get away, but because it was filling me up. And I just stayed there. It was my sister. She's just that way. And that's when I begin to understand, what does it mean to be comforted? And God comes to us and says, listen, I get it. I know the pain in your life. I know the grief in your life. I know the mourning in your life. I'll hold you. Just come here and stay here until you don't need to sit here anymore anybody ever hold a hurting child they cry and they fuss and okay okay and then all of a sudden they go I'm done I think I have to go eat cookies or whatever it is right here's what we do we bribe them with cookies to get them to quit grieving instead of holding them until it's done and here's what God says blessed are those who mourn because in his kingdom he's gonna hold you till you're done he's not gonna lose his patience he's not gonna get tired He's not going to say, hey, listen, I've had enough of your whining." he's going to say, come here. And when you're held by the mighty arms of God, life takes on a different meaning, a different perspective. Healing takes on a different meaning. And you take on his kingdom. Because I'll give my life for the one that holds me like that. And Jesus is saying, listen, you've been praying for comfort, but you haven't wanted to be held. You've been praying for comfort, but you haven't mourned the fact that I I put you people together to bring the Messiah into the world, and you thought it was about you, not him. I travel around the world, and that's the sin of the church. The church is supposed to bring the Messiah into the world, and we think it's about us, not him. We have to mourn that. Not from an angry God, but from a loving God who says, come here, I just want to hold you until you... So my heartbeat becomes your heartbeat you know that's what happened to the Apostle John he was nicknamed the son of thunder how do you get a name like that you're you're rough and tumble you're a fighter you're a brawler don't mess with John and they're the sons of thunder right and how does he identify himself now the Apostle that Jesus loved and what transformed him I'll tell you what it was there's a great insight And the disciple that Jesus loved laid his head on the chest of his master. That was a comfort moment. Jesus had announced he's going to the cross. That wasn't a, oh, hey, we're buddies, how you doing? That was a moment when Jesus said, it's all going to fall apart. Literally within hours, and John, in comfort, leaned his head on the chest of his master. And when he walked out of there, and he stood at the foot of the cross, Jesus said, you take care of my mom right that's what it means to mourn to come in and lay our head on the chest of our master and say your kingdom is now mine your assignment is now mine because you have comforted me he goes on and he says this (laughs) Um, I just want to pause can you imagine sitting there that morning or that day and hearing these words wait a minute Jesus Uh, When you guys know old record players, you know, and the sound that it makes when you move the needle across there, like, right? That must be the sound in their spirit. What in the world are you talking about? Poor spirit, mourning. But wait, there's more. He says, blessed are the meek because they inherit the earth. We love the inheriting the earth, but the meekness part, what in the world is that? We try to define that, but let's go back to Aristotle. Aristotle, in the way that he described virtues, would do this. He would say, there's an extreme here, and there's an extreme here, and the virtue lands in the middle. And so the word that he used for meekness here, he says, there's an extreme of that word, which means anger. And there's an extreme of that word, which means indifference. And he says, meekness is in the middle. That's the virtue. And so he's saying, blessed is the one who's never angry at the wrong time, and never passive at the right time in the middle blessed is the one who's never angry about the wrong thing and always see what I'm saying he says in the middle he says because when when you live in that middle virtue of meekness of strength under control of anger under control of righteousness under control when you live there the world around you changes don't we love being around people like that I've never heard anybody say, I just hate patient people. They so annoy me. We say, oh, I love that person. They're just so patient with me. The virtue is in the middle. And here's what Jesus says. When you live in meekness, that strength under control, that never being angry at the wrong time or about the wrong thing, but always letting the Anger of God burning you about the right thing and at the right time. When you live there, the entire world around you changes. You inherit the earth. Anybody here ever make a mistake in anger that you go, oh, I had to pay for that for a long time? You don't have to tell me, but I know who you are because I read your Facebook. See, the reality of it is, he's saying, the meek inherit the earth because they don't post crazy things on Facebook. Because they live in the middle where the virtue is found. I hope that makes sense. If not, I can start the whole message again. There's one more here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because they are going to be satisfied. The people who heard these words knew hunger and thirst differently than we do. I go to Africa... And we say, my friends say, hey, we're going to the butcher shop. It's the best one in town. And I think, this is so exciting. I, I love new experiences. So we're in Nigeria. We go in. We pull up to a roadside where a man is in 105 degree heat. And he's got a, a, a bag full of beef that he took off of a cow two days ago. And he puts it on a block that a, a thousand other pieces that have been cut already that morning. And he chops it up, puts it in a bag, like, sort of like a Target bag. He hands it to you. And everybody goes, this is going to be so good tonight. And we don't live that way. In my refrigerator right now, I've got venison, I've got steak, and pork, and chicken. I never have to say, give us this day our daily bread. Because I just walk to the refrigerator and get it. I'm so fortunate not to, to be able to do that. And here, these folks hearing these words are going, blessed are the hungry and thirsty we've been hungry and thirsty Jesus it doesn't feel blessed but he adds this little twist he says for righteousness That word righteousness translated uh, in in multiple languages has a dual meaning one is to be in right standing with God and the other is justice in fact in the Spanish Bible it reads justice in several other translations that I of people I serve around the world is justice blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice because those are the ones who receive satisfaction can I just be a little bold this morning I don't think we hunger and thirst for righteousness very well I think we hunger and thirst for revenge set them right God get those people online on track get them squared away not because not because we're so deeply in love with the righteousness of God, but because we're so afraid of losing something that we have. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be in right standing with God, and for the justice of God to flow. The psalmist said that justice of God flows down like a mighty river. When I speak about justice in North India, I was talking about the justice of God prevailing. The entire room began to weep and clap because they know injustice like we don't. We just want God to preserve something that we've we've grown to love and it's not wrong to love it. It's wrong to fight to preserve it when it comes in conflict with righteousness and the righteousness of God. So he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I hunger and thirst for satisfaction. Anybody like that? And I will do almost anything to get it. And he's saying, listen, in my kingdom, when you're in my kingdom, here's here's the nature and the character of it. You hunger and thirst for what is right. And you hunger and thirst for God to make what is wrong right. He's not setting up a spiritual marketplace. He's not saying, listen, I'm going to give you this if you give me that. He's actually saying, this is what it's like. This is what happens when you step into the reality that Jesus is the king and I'm a part of his kingdom. This is what takes place in our lives. So how do we use this? What's the so what for us? I want to finish with that thought. As an ambassador of Jesus, in fact, Paul says that, we are ambassadors for Christ as though we speak the very words of Jesus. And that's in 2 Corinthians 5 if you want to find the address. As an ambassador for Christ, I'm an ambassador for His kingdom and His grace and His kindness and His goodness and His truth. And I need to begin to ask this question. God, God, Who in my life needs to know this? And how do I live this out? Not so that I'm making a declaration, but so that I'm living a grace filled kingdom life where I recognize and I live in the authenticity of my brokenness. And I grieve that. And I live in the virtue of of restraint and self-control and humility called meekness. And my passion is for what is right, even if it costs me. The psalmist said in Psalm 15 that the man of integrity even swears to his own hurt. He hungers for what is right, even if it costs him. I can't think of a more appropriate thought for us as we head into a season where God is going to do some amazing things here. And I'm so grateful that you would get up earlier, come here, be here, sit in this warming weather. And look what we get to do. Look what we get to do. All in the name of our Jesus. I'm so excited you're here. But I think our journey is about the kingdom, not about East Parkway. Our journey is not about our preferences, but our king. And so that's where we're headed. And today, if you would just take some time and say, when somebody experiences me, what do they learn about Jesus and his kingdom? When somebody experiences me, what do they learn about Jesus and his kingdom? And By the way, your assignment for the week, keep reading the Sermon on the Mount every day. I'll tell you why because when we're all done I'm gonna say "You just tell me the Sermon on the Mount and most of you are going to be able to quote it and sometimes that's how God gets the word from in front of you to inside of you and I'm looking forward to that so are you can I pray father you are so good to us there is absolutely no mistaking your kindness there's absolutely no mistaking the joy of knowing you and your kingdom. But God, we're not good at it all the time. And so we want to acknowledge this morning in front of you, we're spiritually poor. We want to live authentically in front of you. And God, it'd be great to say that our poverty goes away. And we know, we know in, in, our, in our salvation it does, but in our practice we still fight it every day paul did too and he said the things i want to do i don't so god we live in our spiritual poverty and we grieve that help us to live with the character and the virtue of meekness and let us live in pursuit of righteousness not not satisfaction because yours is the kingdom forever amen thank you folks